Eight decades ago, popular historian Bruce Catton and journalist and author Jim Bishop wrote works that profoundly affected my life and future profession, teaching. Catton's This Hallowed Ground and Bishop's The Day Lincoln Was Shot were both written in such dramatic prose that the events, people indeed, the very era itself came alive for me. Even today, both authors and their works reinforce my passionate belief that history is alive, relevant, and should be conveyed as a story. For this episode, it is with great reverence and pleasure that I take my lead from Bishop's book, which was published in 1955, sold over three million copies, and was translated into 16 languages. He began his research for the day Lincoln was shot in 1930. Then, after two decades had passed, in 1953, in an effort to expand his research, Bishop began reading seven million words of government documents. The result? An absolutely riveting hour-by-hour account of Abraham Lincoln's last 24 hours. Of course, since the time Bishop completed his research, new diaries and documents have come to light, more pieces of a puzzle that would not have been available to Bishop. Take, for example, Michael W. Kaufman, who wrote the equally riveting American Brutus, which was published in 2004. From his research, he maintains that Booth did not break his leg in his drop from the presidential box to the stage of Ford's Theater, that he did not limp from the scene, that the broken fibula Dr. Samuel Mudd treated later that night occurred when, during the assassin's escape, his horse stumbled and fell on him. Bishop, like every author who writes history, was a product of his time and depended on what he had available at that time. In respectful tribute to the two authors that most influenced my professional coming of age and stoked my drive to recount history as a story, I dedicate this effort. With Bishop's work as my central point of reference here, hour by hour, from 7 in the morning of April the 14th, to 7.22 and 10 seconds the next morning is the story of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. It was 7 a.m., April 14, 1865. The polished rosewood door opened and the 16th president ambled from his bedroom. Up on the second floor, he weaved his way through the bevy of office and favor seekers. Morning vultures, he called them. On this misty Good Friday, Mr. Lincoln had a later start than usual. Since Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox five days earlier, Washington City, in celebration, had been drunk. Around 7.30, he began to leaf through his official correspondence. A few blocks away, the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, asked his wife to send regrets to the Lincolns for an invitation that had been extended to them for that evening. He was not a theater-goer. Over on the east side of Lafayette Square, the 64-year-old Secretary of State was recuperating Back on the 5th, William Seward's horses ran away with him. His carriage crashed on the curb. He had a broken right arm, abrasions, and a double iron brace around his neck and jaw. Over at the National Hotel on 6th and Pennsylvania, the 26-year-old actor John Wilkes Booth was up and restless. 
the ninth child of ten. He was his mother's favorite. She called him Pet. Meticulous, courtly, but given to vanity, he hid bowed legs with wide trousers and extra-long coats. Prussian-born George Atzerott registered for a room at the Kirkwood House over on 12th and Pennsylvania. They gave him room 126, almost directly above the room occupied by the new vice president, Andrew Johnson, the man he was to assassinate later that day. Down in the Navy Yard section of Washington City, Davy Harold sat on the edge of his bed and wondered what time it was. He was 23 years of age, looked 17, and had the mentality of 11. Over at the Herndon House on 9th Street, a block away from John T. Ford's theater, Louis Payne slept late. Intimidating in size, he had no girl, no money, no job, and no ambition. But he did have a task that day. Assassinate the Secretary of State William Seward. Three and a half blocks north, Mary Surratt cleaned up after breakfast at her boarding house at 541 M Street, the place where the conspirators met. She was 45, small, plain, unlovely. She wore a face of forced cheerfulness. Around 8 a.m., back at the executive mansion, the president had breakfast with Mrs. Lincoln, Tad, and Robert, who had just returned from serving on Lieutenant General U.S. Grant's staff. As a joke, his eldest, Robert, gave his father a photo of Lee. Lincoln studied the face and remarked, It is a good face. I am glad the war is over at last. Mrs. Lincoln's mindset was elsewhere. She wanted all to attend Ford's that evening for the performance of Our American Cousin, starring Laura Keene. Robert said he could not, and with the Stantons opting out, perhaps the Grants might be available. Leaving the details to his wife, the president finished breakfast and went back to his office. There he scanned the morning papers. Back in February, he set for photographs by the talented Scotsman Alexander Gardner. While he set, the then 11-year-old Tad bounced around the studio, made his father smile. A welcome change for, as of late, Lincoln had mused aloud about death, a violent one. Yet when he broached the topic, rather than fear, there was sadness resignation. Three days before, on Tuesday the 11th, the president made an impromptu speech to those who came serenading. It wasn't a rousing speech. Rather, he spoke of reconstruction and of limited Negro suffrage. In the crowd, Louis Payne and John Wilkes Booth. It was the latter who, upon hearing about plans to enfranchise blacks, spit out, that means colored citizenship. Now, by God, I'll put him through. His hate for Lincoln had simmered for some time. In fact, Booth had tried twice to act on that hate. The night of January the 18th at Ford's Theater, but Lincoln did not attend. Then again on a cold March day, the 20th, but the president changed his routine that day. He wasn't in the carriage headed to the soldier's home and therefore a foiled kidnapping attempt. Of Booth's family, his older brother Edwin voted for Lincoln in 1860 and 1864. His father, the accomplished English actor Junius Brutus Booth, believed all animals were reincarnated into humans. Once angry with his dad to spite him, a young John Wilkes killed a litter of kittens and the mother cat. It wasn't his only episode of cruelty to animals. Once, to win a bet, he forced a horse to pull him on a sleigh to and from town in the summertime. In 1859, caught up in the events of the day, he begged on to go with a Virginia company 
that served as a guard for the December 2nd hanging of radical abolitionist John Brown. He admired Brown's courage on the scaffold. Handsome, Booth was a ladies' man. He took his women and brandies similarly in long, careless drinks, then tossed them away. His conspirators were little more than simpletons, men who possessed more loyalty to Booth than to the Confederacy. At 9 a.m., Lincoln was back in his office. There, in his pigeonhole desk, there was one bulky envelope labeled assassination. Some 80 threats were inside. No time to dwell on that for him. He had visitors. Speaker of the House Shuler Colfax was the first that good Friday. Lincoln guessed he wanted to stoke the fire for the Secretary of War cabinet position and to suggest that the president shouldn't tackle Reconstruction issues until Congress was back in session. After Colfax left, and I might add with a smile, his next visitor was California Congressman Cornelius Cole. It was a long visit. Meanwhile, Booth returned from a visit to a barber. Smooth. Powdered. Over at the War Department, Grant was finalizing the downsizing of the Army. He dropped in on Secretary of War Stanton. Like the Secretary of War, Grant mentioned he, too, did not want to go to the theater. Instead, he planned to visit two of his children up in Burlington, New Jersey. His wife, Julia, certainly did not want to go. She felt tension when in the presence of the First Lady. Stanton advised Grant to thank Lincoln, but turned down the invitation at the conclusion of the scheduled 11 o'clock cabinet meeting. At 10 a.m., down in the cradle of secession, Charleston, South Carolina, the Reverend Henry Beecher Stowe made a speech, and Brigadier General Robert Anderson raised the same flag over Fort Sumter that he lowered four years ago to the very day. Back in the Capitol, Mr. Lincoln met with ex-Senator John P. Hale, now minister to Spain. Then he gathered with John A. J. Creswell, who back in 61 helped hold Maryland in the Union. Creswell asked for the release of a friend who had joined the Confederacy and had been captured. Unlike Colfax earlier, Creswell left without a smile. While seeing a few more visitors and unaware of Grant's unavailability, a note was sent to Fords on 10th Street to prepare the state box for the Lincolns and the Grants. That message arrived at 10.30 and certainly pleased business manager James R. Ford. You see, Good Friday attendances were usually small, but with the Lincolns and Grants there, not this one. From Ford, I note that the box would be ready. At the 11 o'clock cabinet meeting, all were present except Stanton and the recuperating Seward, who was represented by his son, Frederick. Vice President Johnson could have been there, but wasn't invited. Once begun, the president asked for news of Sherman, who was down in North Carolina. There was none. Lincoln began to recount a recurring dream, but it was interrupted by Stanton, who finally arrived. Talk moved on to Reconstruction, and the Secretary of War read a long proclamation that surmised his thoughts. Afterwards, Lincoln picked up with his dream. It was the same one as just before Fort Sumter, Bull Run, Antietam, Stones River, Gettysburg, Vicksburg, and Fort Fisher. I seemed to be in some indescribable vessel, and I was moving with great rapidity toward an indefinite shore. Usually that dream heralded good news. Over at the National, Booth started out for Ford's Opera House to pick up his mail. He made his way over to 10th Street, tucked between E and F Streets, its surface unpaved, muddy. The three-story red brick building was 18 months old. It seated 1,700, and tickets were usually 50 cents. 
James R. Ford, business manager, was ecstatic about, as far as he knew, hosting the Lincolns and the Grants. Booth was at the theater when acting manager Harry Clay Ford told a carpenter to remove the partition between boxes 7 and 8. Made aware of Ford's special guest for that evening, Booth, too, was delighted. From the ledge of the state box, the distance down to the stage was 12 feet. Incredibly, the doors to those boxes could not be locked. The hallway leading to them, narrow and unlighted. A small white door separated the second floor dress circle with the hallway. A guard usually sat just outside the white door. Under the stage, a passageway. At stage right, a door led to a back alley. Booth went to box seven, watched a portion of a rehearsal, and mapped out his deed, even the scene and line when he would strike. The curtain would go up at eight, and he would strike when actor Harry Hawk, as Asa Trenchard, was alone on stage. It would be about 10.15 p.m. It was now noon. The day was quiet. The sun still obscured, hazy. With renewed purpose, Booth made his way to Howard's stable. There he rented a big, one-eyed roan. It was to be delivered to the stable behind Ford's. Then he made a visit to Pumphrey's stable, across the mall where he rented a fast roan mare. Afterwards, he returned to his hotel to dress. Calf boots, new spurs, black suit with tight trousers and black hat. He grabbed his wallet with images of girls, his diary, a small pocket compass, gold timepiece, gimlet, long sheathed knife, and a small brass derringer. Meanwhile, George Atzerott was at the bar of Kirkwood House, and he was asking way too many questions. Which room does Johnson stay in? Is there a guard? Did he carry a firearm? Was he a brave man? All dismissed him as a drunk, which, quite honestly, he was. Sadly, a sniveling alcoholic, a giggling boy, a brainless automaton. By 1 p.m., the cabinet meeting entered its third hour. There was general agreement to ease the South back in. With Grant in attendance, Lincoln asked him to speak of Lee's surrender. Meanwhile, back at the Kirkwood, Vice President Johnson left for an early afternoon meeting with the president. He arrived while the cabinet meeting was still in session and learned that Lincoln had yet to eat lunch. By 2 p.m., afternoon papers announced that the Lincolns and Grants would be at Ford's that evening. Elsewhere, there was other news. Most curious news. In fact, chilling 250 miles north, the Middleton, New York, Whig Press reported that the 16th president had been assassinated. In St. Joseph, Minnesota, another report had Lincoln killed. In Washington City, the cabinet meeting finally ended. As all left the room, Grant thanked Lincoln for allowing him to be there. That's when following Stanton's advice, he informed the president that his wife wanted to visit their children. Lincoln asked him to reconsider, but almost on cue, a note arrived from his wife reminding him not to be late for the 6 o'clock train to Philadelphia. The note saved the lieutenant general. The president left to have lunch with Mrs. Lincoln at 2.20. Back at Ford's rehearsal had ended, and the decoration of the state box began. A red upholstered rocking chair, two sofas, and a cane chair for the guard were brought up. The partition between the two boxes was removed. The rocker was placed toward the rear of box seven. American banners were brought in. A treasury regimental flag was draped across the facade. And a steel engraving of Washington was placed over the flag. Around 3 p.m., the former Confederate soldier, Louis Payne, paid his hotel bill at the Herndon House. He lunched on cold beef and potatoes and left. 
Back at the executive mansion, there was some tension during the afternoon meeting with the vice president. The one-man proletariat thing bothered Lincoln, yet greeting him, the president vigorously grabbed his hand and called him Andy. Two talked for about 20 minutes. Around four that afternoon, the sun was still masked by clouds. The president had no more appointments, but Wilkes Booth did. He rode the rented mare from Pumphreys. He walked and ran her. Then down at Grover's Theater, he penned a letter of explanation for his planned deed that evening. At the bottom, he signed his name and added three more, Paines, Atzeruts, and Heralds. In essence, he made sure more nooses would be filled. On an envelope, he wrote, Editor, National Intelligencer. At 5 p.m., the Lincolns took a carriage ride along G Street and then down New Jersey Avenue. The president made Mary laugh. Maybe a trip to Europe after the war, then back to Springfield, Illinois, to practice law. He told her, I never felt so happy in my life. And then his wife spoiled his mood. With, Don't you remember feeling just so before our little boy died? In another part of the district, Booth was chatting with fellow actor John Matthews. As they talked, Booth looked down on Pennsylvania Avenue and saw bedraggled marchers. Told there were prisoners, perhaps officers from Lee's army, it prompted him to gasp, Great God, Matthews, I have no country left. At that moment, down 15th Street, a carriage pulled away from Willard's Hotel. Two Union cavalrymen rode just behind. Inside, Julia, Dent, Grant, and a friend. Up front, the driver and U.S. Grant. All were headed for the train station. Passing, Booth recognized the party. He stared hard at Grant, then at the ladies. Both women remembered the wild-eyed rider. He then learned the Grants were leaving town. He was disappointed. A little later, Booth found Atzerat, who, dreading his task, stressed that he was all in for kidnapping, but not murder. Calling him a coward, the two argued. Browbeaten, Atzerat relented. He committed to murder. He went on to pass the next few hours stopping at saloons where he had a drink or two in each. By 6 p.m. on this Good Friday, all the principals were headed somewhere. Booth to an alley that led behind Ford's to stable his mare. He collected three stagehands, and to Tantival's bar they went for a drink. He bought them a bottle of whiskey, and then slipped back into the theater. He picked up a one-and-a-half-inch by three-inch pine board that held a music stand. On the dress circle level, he moved to the white door that led to the hallway, opened it with ease, and then shut it behind him. He wedged the board just above the knob and into the wall by gouging plaster from it. Then he collected fragments from his gouging, put them in a kerchief, and placed the board in a dark corner near the door. He noted that the locks to the presidential box were broken. Inside box seven, he walked between the rocking chair intended for the president and Mrs. Lincoln's chair. He gauged the distance from the ledge to the floor. He thought he could swing over the ledge, hook onto the ledge with his hands, and then allow himself to drop to the stage. Back out in the hallway, he made use of a gimlet. He drilled a small hole in the right corner of the upper panel, the view blurry, but he could see the upper part of the rocker. A penknife opened the hole and cleared the view. Careful to retrieve the shavings, he lit matches to see and scooped up the shavings. Then he left. No one saw or heard, and he slipped back to the National Hotel to eat and rest. The Lincolns returned from their ride, and the president chatted with the new governor of Illinois, Dick Oglesby, and Colonel Isham Haney. In Lincoln's office, they resorted to horseplay. 
After sharing stories, the president had a cold supper. Mrs. Lincoln told him that after 15 no's, they would be picking up the daughter of the New York Senator Ira Harris and her fiancé on H Street near 14th. It was 6.45, and the sun was setting as Peanut John came out to light the big opaque glass globe in front of the theater. There was a steady but small line at the box office. As night fell, handbills minus the grants were distributed. Still, the four brothers hoped for a full house. At 7 p.m., William H. Crook was angry. He had been on guard at the executive mansion from 8 to 4, and his replacement was late. Very late. It was 34-year-old John F. Parker, a shiftless member of the Washington Metropolitan Police. Since late winter of 1865, D.C.'s finest had furnished four men. One of them, Parker, was sandy-haired, married, and the father of three small children. From Frederick County, Virginia, he had been on the force since 1861 and was constantly in trouble with his bosses. As one noted, his outstanding virtue was that he had none. Parker finally arrived and was told that he should meet the Lincolns at Ford's. John Wilkes Booth finished eating and went to his room to load a single-shot Derringer, one one-half-inch ball. He loaded it carefully and tucked a sheathed knife in the waistband of his trousers. Around 7.45, he got off his bed, packed his gear, and walked with poise through the lobby. To the clerk, he asked, Are you going to Ford's Theater this evening? After the reply, I haven't thought of it, Booth added, Ah, you should. You will see some fine, rare acting. Back at the executive mansion, as Crook started to take his leave, Lincoln appeared at the office door and said, Goodbye, Crook. He thought that odd. Usually the president said, Good night, Crook. For the president, there was still a bit of business. Colfax was there again. He explained he would cancel a summer trip to the Rockies in California if Congress might be called back into session. Around 7.50, Massachusetts Congressman George Ashman asked Lincoln if he could help settle a client's cotton claims against the government. Lincoln could barely hide his irritation. The matter was tabled when Mrs. Lincoln looked in and said, Would you have us be late? The president asked the representative to come back tomorrow. Elsewhere, the conspirators held a final meeting. All were told to strike around 10.15. The Lincolns climbed into their coach. Mrs. Lincoln wore a pretty bonnet with tiny pink flowers and a low-necked gray silk dress. On H Street, they picked up Miss Clara Harris and Major Henry Rathbone, who was not in uniform and carried no sidearms. They arrived at Ford's around 8.25. As they entered, some of the crowd turned and gawked. The play was in Act One. Laura Keene as Florence Trenchard was in a scene with Lord Dundreary. The crowd was chuckling as patrons in the dress circle began to stand and applaud. Keene stopped and began to applaud vigorously. The standing room only crowd did likewise. Down in the orchestra pit, Professor Withers led the band into Hail to the Chief. The four moved upstairs round the second-floor dress circle, into the narrow hallway, and finally into the state box. The applause continued until the president signaled, please let the play continue. John Parker had checked the state box. Nothing seemed unusual, and so a few minutes before nine, he left his seat. At the corner outside of Ford's, he found Francis Burns, Lincoln's driver, dozing in his seat. Off they went to the building just south of Ford's, Taltival's. 
By 9 p.m., some 1,675 people were packed inside. In the presidential box, Rathbone had taken Miss Harris's hand. Mr. Lincoln followed suit. He took his wife's. Mary playfully admonished, What will Miss Harris think of my hanging on to you so? He answered, While she will think nothing about it. About 9.30, Booth slipped into the alley behind Ford's. Stagehand Johnny Peanut agreed to hold his mare. And through the back door, Booth bowed, smiled, and chatted to those backstage. He listened to the lines, and he knew he had some time. Down into the subterranean passage, he went to the other side of the stage, and then out a side door into the alley from 10th Street. Into the tavern, Booth asked Peter Tatavel for a bottle of whiskey and water. Usually, it was brandy. Down the bar from him was Burns, the coachman, Parker, the guard, and joining them, Lincoln's valet, Charles Forbes. A voice stabbed from the back of the bar. You'll never be the actor your father was. Booth smiled, nodded, and said quietly, When I leave the stage, I will be the most famous man in America. It was 10 p.m., and outside the clouds began to break. The moon, just past full, was to rise at 10.02. George Atzerott rode back to the Kirkwood house. By his hand, he was to assassinate Andrew Johnson, but his feet took him to the bar. That was as close to completing his task as he would be that night. Booth stepped out of Tautables and coolly chatted with an officer in the Washington Cavalry Police. Declining a drink with him, he said, Keen will be on stage in a minute, and I promise to take a look for her. And so, via the front door, he entered Ford's. It was 10.07. Inside, he said hello to ticket-taker John Buckingham, borrowed a bit of tobacco from him. Buckingham wanted to introduce him to some friends, but Booth winked and said, Later, John. With that, Booth bounded up the stairs and moved around the back of the dress circle. Slowing to hear the lines, he knew he had about two minutes. It was then he saw the guard's empty chair. He was relieved, for there would be no struggle. Booth pushed open the white door and moved into the darkness. Closing it behind him, he found the pine board he had stashed earlier and wedged it above the doorknob and into the notch he had carved. Now he moved toward the unlocked door that led to the presidential box. A shaft of yellow light streamed through the hole he had made earlier in the door. It made a dot on the opposite wall. On stage, Mrs. Mount Chessington had just learned that Asa Trenchard was not a millionaire. There was laughter. Almost holding his breath, Booth heard, Augusta, to your room. Yes, Ma, the nasty beast. She continued, I am aware, Mr. Trenchard, that you are not used to the manners of good society. Booth looked through the hole and found the horsehair rocker and the silhouette of a head above it. Now Trenchard, portrayed by Harry Hawk, was on stage alone. Don't know the manners of good society, eh? Booth did not wait for the next line. He turned the doorknob. The door swung inward. He moved inside. Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, you sockdologizing old man trap. The house roared with laughter. Booth Derringer was behind the president's left ear. He pulled the trigger. Lincoln's arm jerked up compulsively. His head inclined toward his chest. He stopped rocking. Still laughing, Mrs. Lincoln turned toward the noise. A blue chrysanthemum of smoke hung in the box. To those in the theater, it sounded like someone had blown up and popped a heavy paper bag. Some heard, some did not. Booth looked at the other three, and though there are conflicting accounts, one has him saying almost matter-of-factly, sick, simper, tyrannous. He pushed between the Lincolns. The First Lady wore an expression of confusion. 
Rathbone reacted. He lunged at Booth. Derringer dropped. Booth unsheathed his knife and plunged it deep into the Major's left arm. The blow down to the bone. Rathbone extended his right, but Booth was at the ledge now. He shoved Rathbone away and shouted loudly, Revenge for the South! Below, Harry Hawk faltered as Booth climbed over the ledge, turned his back to the audience, and began to let himself down over the side. As he dropped, he pushed his body away from the box with his right hand. However, turning a little, his right spur caught a treasury flag that adorned the box. It ripped and caused him to land awkwardly on his right hand and knee. He rose and fled the stage. Major Joseph B. Stewart climbed to the rim of the stage and shouted, Stop that man! and gave chase. Harry Hawk, still alone at center stage, wept. Backstage, Green had just left the green room and almost bumped into Booth. Then, a piercing scream from the box. It was Mary Todd Lincoln. Clara Harris called for water. Booth cleared the back door, rudely kicked Johnny Peanut in the chest, mounted the rented mare, and as he was settling into the saddle, Major Stewart broke through the door, shouting, Stop! Stop! Booth made his way out Ninth Street and then took a right on Pennsylvania. He headed toward the Capitol and on to New Jersey Avenue, Shantytown. Then he took a left on Virginia Avenue. Back inside chaotic Ford's theater, a second scream chilled everyone. Someone shouted, He has shot the president! The crowd was now a disturbed beehive. Bedlam reigned. Several tried to get through the white door, but it was barricaded. A bloodied Rathbone got the surging crowd to back away, and he removed the wedged pine board. Answering his pleas, a doctor was allowed through, a short man with sideburns and a mustache, 23-year-old Dr. Charles Leal. An assistant surgeon of U.S. volunteers, he entered the box. Rathbone called for attention. Harris was hysterical. The doctor lifted Mrs. Lincoln's head from the president's chest. She blurted, Oh, doctor, is he dead? Can he recover? Will you take charge of him? Oh, my dear husband, my dear husband. Leo responded, I will do what I can. He found the president's eyes closed. He found no visible sign of a wound. Matches were lit. Soldiers were posted at the door. The president was helped from his chair to the floor. Looking at Rathbone's injury, Leal searched for a stab wound on the president. He unbuttoned Lincoln's black coat, vest, unfastened his gold watch chain, slit the paper collar and shirt with his knife, tore the undershirt. His ear went to the chest. Leal lifted eyelids and then saw evidence of a brain injury. He separated his fingers and ran them through the president's hair. He found matted blood. With his little finger, he loosened a clot, and Lincoln responded with shallow breathing and a weak pulse. By now, Dr. Charles Taft was there and served as Leal's assistant. The two moved Lincoln's body into a slumped sitting position, and Leal performed a finger probe. After such, he pronounced, his wound is mortal. It is impossible for him to recover. Still, he straddled the body, lifting arms high and then lowering them to the floor. While all this transpired, Mrs. Lincoln sat on the couch with Harris and Laura Keene, who had moved to the box. Staring blankly, Mrs. Lincoln rocked slightly. The president had to be moved. He was carried down and out through Ford's front entrance. As they emerged across the street, a man in the doorway with a candle motioned. It was William Peterson, a tailor who lived at 453 10th Street. Down a narrow hallway, they lumbered to a 15-by-9 bedroom where they placed Lincoln on a bed. Too short, they had to lay him diagonally with his head close to the wall. Large mustard plasters were placed over his body from shoulders to ankles. Occasionally, he sighed. His pulse was 44 and light. Doctors noticed the pupil of his left eye contracted. The pupil of his right dilated. Both were insensitive to light. 
Messengers were sent to find Robert Lincoln and Surgeon General Joseph Barnes, who was Lincoln's family physician and pastor. The death watch began. Back at the Kirkwood house, Atzerat never acted, but Louis Payne did. Earlier at 1010, Payne and Davy Harold rode into Madison Place in the old clubhouse, Seward's home. There, Payne took a bottle from his jacket and knocked at the door. A young black manservant, William Bell, answered. Payne said, I have medicine from Dr. Verdi. When Bell reached for the bottle, Payne said forcefully, It has to be delivered personally. But Bell answered, No, I have strict orders. You're talking to a white man. This medicine is for your master, and by God, I'm going to give it to him. Bell protested, But sir, out of my way. I'm going up. In and up the stairs, Payne bounded with Bell a step or two behind in chase. At the landing of the top floor, Seward's son, Frederick, emerged to learn of the commotion. By then, Payne was two steps from the top. He whispered he had medicine. The son held out his hand, but Payne refused to give it up. Frederick agreed to see if his father was awake and returned with, You can't go in. He's sleeping. Give it to me. Payne finally said, Very well, sir. I will go. He turned to go, but then pulled a pistol, wheeled, and fired point-blank at Frederick. Click. Misfire. Payne immediately leapt to the top step and brought the butt of the gun down on Seward's head. Repeated blows felled him. William Bell ran down the steps shouting, Murder! Murder! The force of the blows broke Payne's pistol, so he now produced a knife and moved to Seward's bedroom door. He pushed, but someone was leaning against it. He drew back and crashed it in, throwing himself and another onto the floor of the darkened room. As Payne rose, a moving figure went by and he slashed at it. The assassin then jumped astride the bedridden Seward and struck wildly. Once with his arm raised, someone grabbed it. He slashed at the unseen body and heard someone cry out in pain. Two people now tried to drag him from the bed. In the lull, a panicked Seward rolled onto the floor on the wall side of the bed, falling on his broken arm. As he did, three figures staggered about the room, crashing into tables and chairs. Finally freeing himself, Payne dashed out into the hall and yelled, I'm mad! I'm mad! As he ran, he saw a lady in a nightdress. She was screaming. Another man moved toward him. It was Emmerich Hansel, a State Department messenger who arrived at the wrong place in the wrong time. Payne plunged his knife into the man's chest, up to the hilt. Hansel fell without uttering a word. Now Payne lumbered down and out into the street. Behind him, human wreckage. Frederick Seward lay curled on his side with two fractures of the skull. Hansel lay bleeding profusely. Another son, Augustus Seward, had been stabbed seven times. A male nurse, a Sergeant Robinson, had been stabbed four. And Seward's daughter, Fanny, knocked unconscious when Payne barged into the bedroom. The intended victim, Secretary of State William Seward, had been viciously cut three times. One slash almost severed his right cheek from his face. In those few horrific moments, Louis Payne, had created six casualties, the most ever targeted by a single American assassin. Between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. the next day, the death watch continued at the Peterson house. An assassin and accomplice escaped to Maryland, and sheer panic reigned in the nation's capital. During that stretch of time, Secretary Stanton and Wells arrived at Seward's, then made their way to the Peterson House, where for the next several hours, Stanton essentially ran the government of the United States. By 12.50 a.m. of April the 15th, Major General C.C. C. Auger, head of the Military Department of Washington, through questioning, had Booth, Harold, and Atzerat connected. In their flight from the city, Booth and Harold managed to talk their way past Century Sergeant Silas T. Cobb and made their escape into Maryland by means of the Navy Yard Bridge. 
by now. Too many identified Booth at Ford's. Yet, incredibly, no police officer was sent to his room at the National Hotel. Meanwhile, Surgeon General Barnes examined all of the victims at Seward's home, then made his way to the Peterson house. There, in the crowded, stuffy back bedroom, nothing had changed. Nothing could be done. Robert Lincoln spent the night sitting with his mother or standing at the head of the bed. Mrs. Lincoln occasionally came in from the sitting room, then would follow a look, a scream, and then a collapse. During the night, doctors Barnes, Leal, and others continued to make observations. Around 1 a.m., Barnes noted spasmodic contractions of the president's forearms. Muscles of the chest became fixed. The president seemed to hold his breath in spasms and then force air out in gusty explosions. Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner One of more than 40 who entered that tiny bedroom that night was now there. He took Lincoln's left hand, bowed his head, and began to sob. Witnessing that act, eldest son Robert broke down. Dr. Leal personally struggled, as well for he idolized the man dying before him. Around 2 a.m., Andrew Johnson entered the house. He spoke to Robert. Stanton and Mrs. Lincoln, who seemed quite agitated by his presence. Aware of her discomfort, he left to walk back to the Kirkwood house. By 4 a.m., Booth and Harold, some believe, had experienced a mishap. Those that do believe that in a jump, Booth's horse tumbled, throwing him to the ground, then fell on him. In great pain, Harold helped him remount, and on they pushed. Eventually, Booth sought assistance for his injury that either occurred in the jump to the stage at Ford's or in the fall from his mount while on the run. Regardless, the two were some 20-plus miles from the capital. Disguised with a fake beard and muffler, Booth sought the aid of Dr. Samuel Mudd, the 40-year-old tall, thin doctor with brick-colored hair and whiskers, cut the boot away and found a simple fracture of the fibula. Around 4.45 a.m., he applied a splint and allowed the patient and his traveling companion to stay for breakfast. Back at the Peterson house, it was around 5 a.m., and a dark stain appeared around Lincoln's head, signs of a new hemorrhage. New pillows and cases were called for. Everyone there in that tiny, stuffy room completely helpless. Then a new development. The president's right eye began to swell. It had purpled, his legs cold, yet he looked relaxed. Dawn came in, gray, misty tones. At this early hour, Atzerat left a house on C Street where he had slept and on foot drifted through the city. Around six in the morning, Lincoln's guard, John F. Parker, arrived at his precinct with his contribution to justice for the evening. He had arrested a prostitute. Unaccounted for since 10 p.m. last evening, he told no one where he had been. He didn't have to, for no one even asked. No charges were ever leveled and he remained on the force in good standing for another three years. By 7 a.m., drizzle had turned into a hard, pelting rain. Still at large, Lewis Payne crouched in a patch of Washington woods. Booth and Harold were still asleep at Muds in southern Maryland. Back at the Peterson house, Lincoln's right eye was now black, and he began to moan. His breathing, swift, shallow. His lips blew outward, then sucked in. The end was near. Barnes called for Mary Lincoln. She entered the room, looked, heard her son's sobs, and without a word, was let out. Dr. Leal then noted the president's chest heave upward, hold that position, and then relax. It was 7.22 and 10 seconds. He was gone. The Surgeon General withdrew two silver coins and silently 
placed them over Mr. Lincoln's eyes. It was Stanton who broke the silence. Now he belongs to the ages. In a fog of fatigue and shock all drifted from the house. Washington City's bells began to ring, bronze tongues announcing, amplifying the grief. For authorities, a massive manhunt was on. As Ms. Lincoln left the Peterson place, she stared at Ford's theater and spat out bitterly, that dreadful house, that dreadful house. Meanwhile, the news spread. Its splash, great, ripples most ominous. For many, vengeance was now on the wing. So many, and on so many levels, nationally, regionally, locally, that shortly thereafter, Herman Melville picked up his pen and wrote a poem entitled, The Martyr. Its final verse most ominous, as history has repeatedly demonstrated. There is sobbing of the strong and a pall upon the land, but the people in their weeping bear the iron hand. Beware the people weeping when they bear the iron hand. The timing of the first assassination of an American president was unbelievably unfortunate. A defeated and prostrate South. Some four million freedmen needing guidance. A federal government that during the war had flexed its administrative muscle in ways and measures that we today might recognize it. And after some 750,000 deaths, the delicate balancing act of reconciliation and reconstruction. Simply put, now that the war was won, how to win the peace? Even today, it may well be argued that still we're trying to win the peace. Since you enjoy the story within history, I would like to introduce you to Threads of the War, personal, truth-inspired flash fiction of the 20th century's war. Emotionally compelling, individual stories from World War I, II, and the wars we keep fighting because of them. Download the latest episode of Threads of the War from your favorite podcast app, and may the lessons of history compel the world toward peace. When we gather again, we'll follow the flight and be a part of the massive manhunt for the man who assassinated Abraham Lincoln. Next time, the flight and chasing down of John Wilkes Booth. I hope you'll be with us. This is Fred Kiger. Please continue to be safe, and thank you for listening.